Okay, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so pleased that you're joining. Today we are going to conclude the second chapter of the Shara Betochen, this gate of trust. And just as a little refresher, Rabbeinu Bechaya has been involved in a very interesting synergy of Torah teaching because on one hand, he's made these logical presentations he talks about in a very rational way what it would need for a person to be able to place full trust in some proverbial provider like like what kind of assurances what kind of guarantees what would you need to be certain of before you put your life in someone else's hands not because you don't have a choice I mean invariably we have no choice if we want to get to a destination, to put our life in the pilot's hands. Lots of people have anxiety, though. Not everybody flies easily, if you will. So why do they fly? They say, what, what are you going to do? 
Life is stressful. It's more stressful to stay home. You, you're going stir crazy. You, you want your vacation, your holiday. You want to be in touch with family. You want to travel and see the world. So it's a trade-off. So like, I get anxious when I'm looking at the four walls. I get anxious when I'm traveling. Um, I think I'll take my chances. People jump out of airplanes with a parachute that they hope is going to open. They don't do this only for a profession or a need, say paratroopers. People do it actually for pleasure. It just gives, gives you an idea of what lengths people will go to to have a moment of excitement, pleasure, exhilaration. To have an experience to talk about, skydiving. So they're trusting that <laughs> the parachute's going to work. Now, most of the time, the parachute does work. In fact, almost all the time, these are very carefully tried and tested mechanisms. But there is always the possibility that, hmm, you might be the quote, end quote, unlucky one. Are people perfectly at peace, or is there a pumping of adrenaline, and is there a certain anxiety or nervous energy? I wouldn't know. I have no intention of going skydiving. Why take a risk like that, even if it's a tiny risk for a little fun? Now, if I need to skydive, then I, you do what you got to do. But I want to tell you this. If I need to do something like that, I hope that I would be able to do it with perfect tranquility, not because I trust the parachute or the creator of the parachute, or the people who took care of making sure that the parachute works, but because I trust in Hashem. And the more you and I will learn about this, and the more we, we are able, by virtue of our cerebral activity and the contemplative exercises that follow the learning, that we were able to actually experience a, a sense of absolute inner peace. No anxiety whatsoever. That's the goal here. I'm really serious about this. The purpose of our studies is so that we will live lives without a shred of anxiety. No fear whatsoever. Who, who has that? Who gets to live like that? We can, all of us, if we place our trust in Hashem. So Rabbeinu B'chaya, having identified in a very logical way the kinds of things you would need to find in a provider, to know with certainty, in order for you to live with certainty, it's all logical. It just makes good sense what he says. He says, logically, you can't find that anywhere except for the Creator. Now, after having spelled it out, in the plainest, the most obvious of terms, Rabbeinu Bachaya begins to go through criteria after criteria with quotations from various scriptures, from the Navi. Now, I talked about this yesterday. I think probably the episode before as well. Like, what's the purpose? Well, of course the scripture is going to say. And I explained to you that we don't know anything about God for certain. How could we? We can just suppose things. But if the scripture says it, 
Well, I mean, that's God speaking to us. Or so we believe. And in yesterday's episode, I went through the details of that faith and why it's different than any other faith system that's out there. The, the proof, if you will, for the veracity of Torah Judaism. So at any rate, it is clear that Abbein Obechaya felt compelled to quote a series of verses. And now he's kind of going to tie this all up. He's going to say, okay, let's talk about this on a logical level. Let's talk about the fact that we have scriptural verses. And let's deal with the paradox of sorts. Where on one hand, everything is rhyme and reason, just makes sense. And yet on the other hand, everything Rabbeinu Bahaya is saying sounds kind of religious. I mean, he's Bible thumping. Says this and it says that, and so it is written, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. Is, is it so because so it is written? Or is it so because that's the only logical conclusion to come to? That's the gist of what we'll be addressing today. We're also going to talk about how one deals with challenges. What happens when it doesn't work out exactly as you expected or hoped things to be? Does that weaken your faith? Does that threaten your faith? Or is that where faith comes into play? I'm glad you're joining. Please stay on for what I think will be an exhilarating episode that will clarify many of the details that haven't yet been fully spelled out and articulated. If you're following along in the new Kihat edition, we're on page 53. And we're going to begin with what's the second paragraph on that page. Vahasechel gozer. So that literally means our intellect or logic decrees. <laughs> what does that mean, logic decrees? Well, let's just say this. When you're looking at things logically, you don't have optional conclusions like one plus one necessarily equals two. That's a fact. You can't argue with facts because facts are stubborn things. So if a person introduces something to you in a logical way, you can't really say, well, maybe it's not so. The logic, proverbially speaking, decrees it to be so. We're compelled to come to that conclusion. It doesn't always have to be a mathematical equation. Suppose we were to identify a person who was suffering or in pain. And we'd say, well, logic kind of would decree that if a person wasn't comfortable being somewhere or doing something, that they're not going to do it or be there unless they have to. So logically, if they're there again, what would the reason be? Why would they do that to themselves? Clearly, they felt compelled. We might, of course, then ask, what was it that compelled them? Was it something that actually compelled or forced them? Did they imagine it to be something 
understand what I'm saying? When we say decree, it's not as if there is somebody forcing something on somebody else. What we're really saying is it's kind of factual. That's the way it, that's the way that cookie crumbles. It's the way the dominoes fall. So Haseichel Geyser, common sense, logic, decrees or compels us to come to the conclusion. When we gather together all seven criteria, all of which logically are requisite qualities for me to be able to place my trust in a provider. That when you gather all of these together, that they're only to be found only God himself could have all these qualities. I mean, it's, it's just not humanly possible. Simply isn't. This is beyond the purview or the possibility of created entity because created entities have their limitations. And what we're talking about is not just a bionic man or woman. We're talking about an omnipotent creature. I say that word tongue-in-cheek, God's not a creature, an omnipotent entity, something which has no limitation and is in full control and has all the power. No entity other than the Creator can possibly meet these qualifications. Therefore, so the fact that I brought these verses from the scripture, says Rabbeinu Bahaya, was not because I was trying to prove to you from the scripture that this has to refer to God and that trust could only be placed in Hashem because so it is written. It doesn't need to be written. It's logical. You know, the Talmud coined this phrase, Svarahi Kralamali. If one of the protagonists of the Talmud will introduce an idea by virtue of the information gleaned from the scripture, we could respond, Svarahi. That's logical. Kralamali. What purpose does a verse serve? Why did you bring a verse to buttress what you're saying? It's obvious. It's self-understood. Well, if it's self-understood, if it's self-evident, we don't need a verse. It isn't true because the Bible or the Torah says it's true. It's true because it's true. Because, because it's self-evident. <laughs> How does the American Declaration of Independence open? We hold these truths to be self-evident. So whilst they were people of great faith and very much inspired by their Bible studies, they didn't quote scripture because they said they believed these things to be self-evident. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, if it's self-evident or obvious, why did I bring all these verses? He's kind of almost like responding to an unspoken question. Just as sometimes he raises a rhetorical question, here he's answering the unspoken 
you can kind of articulate the question by dint or virtue of the response, the explanation that he provides. So I brought these psukim, these verses, lezikaron bilvad. So what does that mean? Let me share with you some of the, the commentary, which I have to tell you is really all quite similar. Like the Ned the Barkodesh says, Seichel Mechaev. Logic, common sense dictates this. So, Vapsukim, Shehevi, what did it bring verses for? It's Lizikaron, it's only as a, it's an aid to memory. Lahoir al Esaseichel, to elucidate, to amplify, to, to kind of fully develop this in a more logical way. Now, what does that mean? Like, like how would verses help me to remember something? Let me explain what I'm asking. Is it easier to remember something that's written or something that you understand? Something you know or is self-evident? I mean, it's definitely the latter. If I understand it and it makes sense to me, I don't have to memorize it. I know it. What does it mean that the verses are brought lezikaron for a memory? So the Neder B'Kodesh is lahoir with an, with an ayin, not an aleph, not to illuminate, but lahoir to elucidate, to clarify, to punctuate things intellectually. Now this has to be understood. In the words of the Tov Halavonom, he says, the collection of these seven items or criteria are clearly something that's godly in the purview of the Creator. It's Nizbar bin Asechel. It's, it's easy to explain this. It's, it's obvious. It's logical. The Barpala Nefesh says, what's he getting at? What he means to say is, the fact that I brought these verses, so the Marple of Nefesh says, he's not saying he brought these verses because you wouldn't remember it or know it otherwise. Now that you have chapter and verse, oh, now, now I'm going to remember. Said no one ever. No, Marple of Nefesh says that wasn't the point. The point was, there are so many other verses that could have been brought. I mean, we're talking about basic axioms of the way we view and are taught to understand divinity. That, that God is non-corporeal, that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful, that God is loving and merciful, that God's a, God is attentive, that God always follows through. These are all axiomatic basic principles. So there are many verses about them. So why did he bring more verses? So he says, of course, there are many verses that indicate this. Rakshain Sarukhlavia, we didn't have to bring all those verses. Why not? He says, because this is a logical thing. He didn't have to really bring proof from verses or scripture altogether. Oh. So if you didn't have to bring proof from Scripture, why did you? So the Marvel Nefesh says, 
not He's almost like he's mentioning these things. He's mentioning, he's not proving, he's not kind of demonstrating the veracity of the idea because so it is written. He's mentioning. In other words, zikaron in Hebrew can be read literally as memory, or lezikaron can also be read as a mention. He's just mentioning. So from the Marple and Ephesus, it's clear that he doesn't mean that he's giving you verses so that you can remember these ideas, rather that he's giving you verses, he's mentioning verses. Without the verses, you know this as well. And, and we don't need more or additional verses to mention. <laughs> like what they say, an honorable mention. Here's a, a silly joke. I don't know what you, you can do with it. But. So the family gathers together to hear the will of the late deceased uh, wealthy relative. And the will begins to read to, to, to my spouse. I leave the, those large condo buildings on the waterfront. And to my brother, I leave the, the business complex. And to my uh, other brother, I leave the cottage. And to my cousin, I leave that yacht. And he's going on the list. And then at the end, the nephew is sitting there, just waiting and waiting. His name is not mentioned. And finally, the last line is, and so my nephew, Maury, who always wanted to know if he'd be mentioned in my will, hello, Maury. <laughs> Just a mention. In other words, being mentioned doesn't mean that there is cause, that there is like purpose to it, or, or there's a need for it. It's mentioned as it's written, as it's written, not because it's written. The Paslechem puts it a little bit differently, and, and I have to say that the, the Paslechem was unique amongst all of the other super commentary that was written on the writings of Shara Betochen because he is the only one who so far has consistently combed through A, the seeming redundancies, and explained why Rabbeinu Bahaya has to mention things twice or thrice, and he says because there's a need for the additional mentions. He's actually ruling things out. And the Paslechem has also consistently explained to us the distinction between the quote of one verse and the other. And from the Paslechem's commentary, it certainly would seem up to this point that the verses were quoted as proof. So the Paslechem has some explaining to do now. Like, how do you understand Rabbeinu Bechai's words now when he says it's... Just a mention. Really? So it wasn't just one verse, but sometimes two or three verses in succession to make a point. If it was only a mention, why so, ma why so many verses? Mark Pelinefer says you could have brought another ten. Okay. So was mentioning a few, as, as we would say, like, you know, in the vernacular. Just to mention a few. But Pas Lechem explains why each one was mentioned. And we've certainly been studying this material as if it is so, well, because the scripture says so. Okay, so the Paslechem actually explains himself now. He says that 
the many verses that are quoted over here. The Emet, he says, the truth is, Rabbeinu Bechaya acknowledges, Lo hayiti I didn't need to bring proof from verses. He doesn't say, I didn't bring proof from the verses. Because the Padlechem explained how they are proofs. He said he didn't need to bring proofs. Why not? Shagam haseichel ha'anushi gozer umechayev. Because common sense, human intelligence, so to speak, decrees, metaphorically necessitates this obvious, almost foregone conclusion. When you look at all these seven criteria, the whole range or gamut, it's got to be found only in God. It can't be found anywhere else. So why did he bring the verses? So Paslechem says, Rabbeinu Bechaya's remonstration is, I only brought these verses to Zikaron Bilvad. What does that mean? Just as a mention. He says, Koloma, in other words, She'ein kavanati rak lihiyoton lemazkeret velo l'raya. He's not saying he just mentioned a few verses. Paslechem did not understand the words of Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar like that at all. He said, I'm not saying I didn't bring them as a proof. I'm not saying that. Da'ainu. But rather, when a person will have these verses, will review these verses, and the verses will become something that remains with him. So the verses become the way that you can also remember the criteria itself. You know what it's like? Sometimes you have these uh, social commentators or you have these popular speakers who will create like phraseology. They'll coin these terms or, or they'll say, you have to step, step, that's the key, that's the key. You have to have stamina and tenacity and be enterprising and be proud. I'm, you know, I'm just like, throwing this out there. So they say, step, it's called the STEP program. Or they, you know, they create this, these acronym or, 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 or kind of like piece together some kind of whatever strategy they came out. So it spells step or life or jump. You've heard this stuff. Like sometimes it's a bit of a stretch. Like it didn't exactly, you know, you could have used the word happy instead of jovial, but then you couldn't spell jump, it would spell hump. Hump is nuts. Nobody wants to be a hump or be faced with a hump. But a jump, that's great. Everybody wants to jump ahead. So don't say hump ahead, you say jump ahead. Okay, so then instead we chose jovial instead of happy. Be jovial, be upbeat, be markedly uh, focused and uh, persistent. Okay, great. Now we have jump and we call it the jump program. So he says this is the way a Jew who studies Torah looks at verses of the Torah. Like when you read a verse and study a verse, and then and you're able to repeat the verse. So it's easier to memorize or to, to kind of bring to memory verses of Scripture than Rabbeinu Bachai, write such and such, if I can quote a verse. 
So when I want to say that, that God is good, God is good to all and He's merciful on all His creatures. He gives sustenance to all flesh. Wow, so God is good and He gives. He's generous and, and He's giving. Okay, so, so it helps. It helps to remember the ideas. Not that it wasn't brought as a proof. In other words, yes, of course. He demonstrates it is so, and he brings it as a proof. But Abayna B'chayah says, I didn't bring it only as a proof. I also quoted these verses to help you to be able to bring to mind the different ideas that are articulated. What's, what's the, what compels me to say that? So here, the Paslechem kind of is a skirting a, a very narrow bridge here because he's, he's kind of like, he doesn't want to reject the idea that these verses were brought as a proof because in fact, because in fact they are brought as proofs. And much of what the Pas Lechem has written and argued for was why we had to bring these different verses as proofs. So the Pas Lechem says, so why is Rabbeinu Bechaya saying that it wasn't brought, I brought these psukim lezikaron bilvad, if he explained himself how all of this is really a proof. He says, what he means then to suggest is, if my intention of bringing these specific verses was because here's how I could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the veracity of what I'm saying and enable you to come to that conclusion, he says, Yachala Harbis. I could have just, like, you know, if, if I wanted to just prove to you, I could have thrown out many more verses at you. So he says, I th- he threw it the bare minimum. He brought the bare minimum of verses, not the maximum of verses, because if, if you want to prove something to be true, you're going to prove it to the best of your ability. I mean, let's, let's lose like a simple example. If I wanted to prove that a product is worthy of your attention, say I'm a salesperson. I want to sell you this product. I'm not going to tell you some of the virtues. I'm going to tell you all the virtues. I'm going to prove to you that this is exactly what you've been looking for. <laughs> you know, they say the difference between a rabbi and a salesperson is the salesperson sells you something that you want, but you don't really need. The rabbi's job is to sell you something you need, but you don't really want it. I've got to convince you that you want this. It's like I have a much harder sell job. And by the way, I'm in sales, not management. I can't tell you why God does what he does, but I'm in sales to try to get you on board with joyous, devoted, faithful, trusting service in Hashem. So if, if I want to sell something to you, and I want to prove to you this is exactly what you've been looking for, am I going to kind of aim low, just give you the bare minimum? Of course not. I'll bring as many proofs as I need. And you know how else I know I'm right? I'll say A and B and C. And by the way, D, F, G, H, I, J, K as well. And I say, wow, so many proofs. Yeah, this has got to be true. I mean, how many proofs do you need? And I'm not finished yet. I can tell you till X, Y, Z. And I'll bring you proof after proof after proof. I say, well, so many proofs. It must be so. So if all Rabbeinu B'chaya was gunning for was, so to speak, proof, he would have brought you far more verses. In other words, this is how Paslechem tells you to read the words. When he says, Lachain Hevesu Elu Hapsukim, he says, read it as if Lachain Hevesu Elu Hapsukim Rak Elu Hapsukim. That's why I brought you only these verses. That's why I didn't bring you more verses. In the view of the Paslechem, 
what the what Rabbeinu Bachai is saying to you is this. He says, I know if you're a rabbi, you're going to say, hey, I know that there are so many other verses Rabbeinu Bachai could have brought. I wonder why he didn't bring those. I mean, plainly, clearly, obviously, they address this very issue and they prove the point. So Rabbeinu Bachai said, yeah, I didn't bring those other verses because it wasn't just about proof. This is logical was about giving you the mechanism with which you could frame these ideas, frame them in scripture, frame them in psukim. So when you want to talk about Hashem's rachamim, a mercy, you say, and you say these verses, God is good to all, He's merciful to all, God provides the sustenance that every creature needs. And by saying things like this, by bringing to mind verses like this, so he said, right, kilaholam chasto, right, right. So that's a, that's a divine, godly quality. And perhaps just to, it's, it's worthwhile to add that to the, the modern student of the 21st century, who is A, not familiar with Hebrew, and B, not familiar with scripture, some of this is hard to understand. So what, what do you mean? Why, why is Rebbeinu Bachaya saying it's going to help me to see it in view of many verses? But it's important for us to remember that in antiquity, and even in the Middle Ages, Jewish children were always literate. They all went to Cheder. In fact, since the days of Yeshua ben Gamla, there's always been a school system in place centuries, millennia before the Western world came to the conclusion that it is a responsibility of the state to provide an educational system and to ensure literacy amongst its citizenry. Millennia before, we the Jewish people are doing that. Because Talmud Torah for us was always the most prized possession, the, 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 the thing that every Jew yearned for, pined for, hoped for. But the world was lionizing brawn and val valor on the battlefield. We lionized scholarly pursuit, knowledge of Torah. That was the single most powerful commodity in Jewish, Jewish anthropology. It's not an accident that the Jewish community has not only produced more Torah scholars, but more secular scholars than any other ethnic group ever. I mean, you look at the amount of Nobel Prizes. Excuse me. Including the most recent announcements that came out just a couple of days ago. And there, once again, the Jewish people are dis proportionately recognized. It's not because they love us. <laughs> These are the very same bastions of academia that bash Israel whenever they can. The bias against Jewish people and against the Jewish state is well documented and very obvious from the ivory towers in Oslo. And yet, and yet, they keep awarding Jewish people these prizes. It's not for a love of the Jewish people. 
No, it's because incredibly we the Jewish people have produced more scientists, more doctors, more statespeople than any other ethnic or religious group. And the truth is Jewish people are not necessarily an ethnicity only. We are a group of faith brothers and sisters. And a person who converts according to halacha is considered as Jewish and has to be treated even more gently and more considerately than somebody who's born Jewish. So you can be black, blue, green, yellow. It doesn't make a difference what color you are. It makes, it makes or matters only that you have an ashama. And the soul has nothing to do with ethnicity. The soul is a spiritual reality that embodies itself within the terrestrial reality of us physical Jewish people. So the Jewish people are grossly misrepresented. Why is this? Well, it's because genetically, or what they would call in modern terminology, epigenetically, we were always studying. Epigenetics is the breaking field of genetic study that indicates that people can actually change their genes. You can pass on your vocation and your pursuit. If it happens for a few generations in a row, it becomes a genetic marker. It actually becomes something that's inherent. Quite fascinating. The Talmud says that after three generations of excellence in Torah study, the Torah comes back to where it's been hosted. In other words, there's a genetic predisposition for excellence in Torah scholarly pursuit. And you see it. Familiarly, you can see it, but Torah scholars generally produce generations of Torah scholars. But the Jewish people at large have always been studying and educating their children. In a time where people toiled and slaved from sunrise to sunset just to keep body and soul together, just to earn a few cents, just to be able to feed one's children and ward off starvation the children were still going to school. All children were proficient in the Tanakh. They all knew scripture. Five books of Moses wasn't even a question. They were aware. They knew scripture. What they didn't necessarily know was Mishnah because that only begins to be studied at age 10. Or Talmud, which only begins to be studied at age 15. Most of these children were working full-time or apprenticed to some profession that, that would hopefully enable them to earn a living for their children. Remember, life expectancy at this time was 40-something. People married very young, had their children early, and hoped to see grandchildren. So when Rabbeinu B'chai talks about verses or scripture, he's talking to people who knew scripture. Especially the Sephardic Jewish community that he ministered to was very proficient in scripture. So if he could present these ideas framed with scriptural references, it's the easiest way for people to be able to remember it. Now that might not be the case for many highly educated and intelligent Jewish people today. But still, there's something beautiful about reading these verses and I have to tell you, if you, wanna, if you want this book to work for you, I know I do, 
you're going to have to keep studying it. I guess the good news is, yes, it's possible to change your life. This is a life-changing book. You can. You can actually live a tranquil, peaceful, anxiety-free life. The bad news is, it's not easy. It takes a lot of effort. And you'll have to keep repeating this. You have to study it on a regular basis. You have to discuss these ideas regularly, think about them, contemplate them. This is something that what, whatever level of involvement you have will necessarily yield that level of benefit. And that's a choice that we make. As they say, no deposit, no return. The more effort you'll put or place or invest, the more you will be able to glean from these studies. So when you have a verse and you're familiar with verses or you become familiar with verses and these verses become the way you frame these ideas, it becomes easier to bring them to mind. It becomes easier to, to think. Many people are familiar with Parshas Hazinu. They know the verse, and now they take this verse and they think back to the idea, this, this, this concept that Hashem formed you, that this verse is speaking about the beginning, the genesis of your personal existence. I relied on you in my mother's womb from the moment I emerged. People who recite Tehillim copiously are very familiar with this verse and they can easily bring it to mind. The verse is rich in its imagery when it speaks about milk and cheese. So these are ideas or touchstones, memory touchstones that you actually can use to remember these ideas. And the interesting thing is that it seems to me, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me that where the Marpele Nefesh reads the word Zikaron as mention, the Paslechem actually reads it as memory. He says, here's how you can remember these things. People become used to reciting verses, thinking of verses, framing things with scriptural syntax. So that's what this is about. And at this point, says Rabbeinu Bechaya, now that you have learned to appreciate the ideas, we will draw the obvious conclusions. And in drawing the obvious conclusion of God's the perfect boss and only in God we trust, Rabbeinu Bechaya is also now for the first time, going to deal with or acknowledge the very real possibility that sometimes, despite our trust in Hashem, it may not exactly work out as we hoped or anticipated. Now, there's a very strong element of us being able to change things by virtue of our trust in Hashem. Sometimes, for reasons unbeknownst to us, the answer won't come as we expected 
or anticipated or hoped for. And that doesn't produce a crisis of faith. Early on in this series, I don't know, maybe in the first three or four episodes, I quoted a fascinating talk of the Rebbe and I shared a personal story about the seeming paradox between trust and faith. Whereas faith means whatever happened is for the best. And trust means I trust it'll be good in an overt and obvious way. And the Rebbe acknowledges this paradox. We've, we've spoken about it that I'm going to come back to that edited talk, one of the earliest edited talks, and I'm going to reiterate it and read from the text in future episodes when it's more of the focus. The Rebbe says that Hashem asks and expects of us that which is actually beyond the purview of the human condition, that we should be able to kind of maintain a paradox. And as the Rebbe explained many years later, you have to be able to focus on each moment and live within that frame. It's one of the most difficult and even unnatural things for people to do. As the famous Charles Osgood, the CBS commentator, who used to have something called the Osgood file, once said or noted that people are in a bad mood on Sunday afternoon because the weekend's almost over. So whilst they're on holiday or vacation, they're thinking about the next morning. Whereas on Friday afternoon, when they're still in the office, they're already in a good mood looking forward to the vacation that they'll experience, to the trip that they're planning for the weekend. And he raises the simple point of, how ridiculous is that? Where everybody's always happy for or living in the next moment instead of living in the here and now. <laughs> like, you're in the office. Deal with being in the office. You're on holiday or enjoying time with your family. Immerse yourself in that experience. Why do we keep projecting? That's, by the way, part of what Betochen solves. Part of what Bittachin is all about is stop worrying or thinking about what will be tomorrow. Focus on the here and now. Hashem loves you. He's brought you up till this point. Place your trust in Him. And the Nebuchadnezzar says that we are called upon to do something which seems on the surface to be paradoxical. On one hand, we're called upon to live with Bittachin. I know it's going to be good. I have no worries. I place my trust in Hashem. Who else are you going to trust on, on the other hand, there, there is always the possibility that it won't necessarily go down as I hoped it would. And then I have to lean on my faith. And I have to live in each frame at that moment. And the way to view this is, what does Hashem ask of me now? And as discussed in the earliest episodes, what Hashem asks of us, He gives us the ability to do. So if He told us, do this, yes, we can do it. Because the Creator would never ask us of something we couldn't do. 
That's why betochen has to be a mitzvah, if you will. But I digress. So going back to the point here now. Rabbeinu Bechaye is going to bring this all together. And he's going to demonstrate how a Yid lives with betochen and emuna, And regardless of what comes, he's able to be tranquil. But before we move forward to conclude the second chapter, I want to share with you a fascinating rumination from the Rebbe on something very similar that happens in the opening verses or the opening sentences of the Rambam's magnum opus, Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, the restatement of the entire Torah in an original, highly creative system of 14 books, the Rambam commits everything in Torah into straightforward halachic and relevant prose. So the Rambam begins what he calls the foundations of the Torah. And he says that the yesod ha-yesodot, the foundation of all foundations, the amud ha-chachmot, the pillar that supports all of wisdom, is leida, is to know. Doesn't say to believe, he says to know, logically, rationally. Sheyesh sham matzoi rishin, that there is a primordial being. Vahu, and that primordial being is not a created entity, but rather, mamzi kol hanimza. That entity is the source of all existence. Everything in the universe can only hail or spring from the truth of that authentic existence. And if you entertain the idea that there is no truth no absolute existence, no entity that is beyond what we can fathom, from which all of existence comes, well, if there's no source, then nothing else can exist. Everything's got to come from somewhere. Vimyal aladas, Rambam says, this is logical. If you'll think, if nothing else exists, if you come up with some kind of philosophy that argues that nothing really exists, that's fine. It doesn't mean that God doesn't exist because everything needs God, but God doesn't need anything. And then the Rambam very curiously in Halacha 4 says, Hu This is what the prophet says. Hashem Elikim Emes. The Lord God is true. Who ha'emes levade? It's a quote from Jeremiah, chapter ten, verse ten. Who levade emes? He is true, meaning lasting and eternal. Vein la'achar emes kamitasi. There is no other truth quite like, or anywhere remotely like the truth of divinity. Who shatoro meres? This is what Deuteronomy chapter four, verse thirty-five says. Ein od milvado. There is no other existence other than God. There's no other existence. I exist. You exist. We exist. There's a whole system of 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 <laughs> of, of communication that's allowing us to be able to share these Torah thoughts together. I mean, nothing exists. Ein od milvado. Nothing exists. 
It exists. It doesn't exist as the truth of divinity exists. All of this is but virtual. All of this is brought into existence. It's a dependent existence, whereas God depends on nothing. That's the only true, objectively true existence. There is nothing like him insofar as existence is concerned. So the Rebbe, in 1986, when he made a siyum on the Rambam, and this, is, this was later edited, it's a very nuanced and um, fascinating the rumination with many, many novelties and all kinds of um, twists and creative ideas. Now I'm going to focus on just a very narrow, a slender portion of this edited rumination for today's, for today's presentation, for this episode, just to point out that the Rebbe seems to highlight the very same paradox that Abbein Abachaya speaks about himself. Only the Ramam doesn't mention it. And the Rebbe says, one, one, one second, I mean, here the Rambam is logically describing in rational terms how everything has to exist from somewhere. And then he comes along and says, oh, that's what the prophet says. So is this taken on faith because so it is written? Or is this logical or the only logical or rational conclusion that one comes to when you think about it? Which one is it? Is this about Leda, to logically know? Or is it about Lahamin, to believe? And there's a lot of discussion about the verbiage of Leda or Lahamin, to know or to believe. There's different versions of the Ramam's Book of Mitzvahs, depending on which translation it was written originally in, Hebra- in Hebraized Arabic. And then there's the whole discussion. What did the Rambam really mean? Was he talking about knowledge or faith? Mishnah Torah is written in Hebrew. Ramam writes, Leida. He says, to know. And then he's quoting scripture. Well, if he's quoting scripture, that's to believe. We believe in the psukim, in the Tanakh, in the scripture. That's not the conclusion we reach by virtue of a cerebral exercise. So what is going on here? So the Rebbe suggests a fascinating resolution to the seeming paradox. And he says the following. He says, although the Rambam has already described in logical terms that if God doesn't exist, nothing can exist. And that's why No other existence can be like the existence of God because all other existence has a point at which it begins to exist, at which it's brought into existence. It has a beginning. but God has no beginning. There was no world without God. We're not capable of fathoming that because we are finite creatures and we cannot fathom infinity. So he says that's logical. If so... The Rebbe said, Why does the Rambam add? Ah, indeed. This is what the Prophet said. But the Prophet said it. The Prophet said it. Torah says, Torah says. That's not logical. But first, the Rambam begins from the vantage point, from the perspective of rhyme and reason. He's making an intellectual argument. 
And then he moves into, so it is written. So the Rebbe said, Habir the explanation of what's happening in these opening lines of the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, and it would seem that the same kind of explanation could apply here to the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya. Habir because God is not necessarily limited to our understanding. Our, our minds, our ability to fathom human intelligence is limited. We work with certain variables, certain axioms. So by virtue of those axioms, of those poles, of those limitations, of those frames, we can make logical arguments. But that's because we live in a limited reality. It is possible, in theory, for God to have created existence in such a manner that existence no longer needs to be connected to its creator. Yeah, but that's illogical. If something is in motion, somebody's got to be putting it in motion. Yeah, that's logical, but the truth is that God isn't limited to our understanding of reality. And it would be possible for God to create something that to us doesn't make any sense. So we can't explain that. It doesn't make any sense to us. It's okay. Who says it has to make sense? From our limited perspective, it can't make sense. In other words, rhyme and reason, human intelligence, when you're talking about the divine truth, are not the be-all and end-all. A very clever fellow once said to me, he said, you know, it can't be that God would say A, B, and C, and what he said to me was a contradiction of what's written in Scripture. He says, because God's not stupid, and that's stupid. I said to him, my dear friend, that which may appear stupid to you is only based on the variables that you have or as you know it. It's illogical to you. That doesn't mean it's intrinsically illogical. It doesn't make sense to us. Here's a lame metaphor. If you would explain, try to explain to a child, certain realities that we understand as adults that children can't possibly fathom, they wouldn't be able to understand it. Say, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It can't be. Because the scope of their intelligence at that point in life is such that they can't wrap their heads around something that's beyond what they're able to hear, see, touch, and feel. It just doesn't add up. Now remember, you and I were all once children. We've gotten older. I can't believe how dumb I was a decade ago. I hope in a decade from now I'll still be teaching Torah and I'll look back and say, wow, there was so little you know. I can't believe how dumb you were. I hope. That's, <laughs> that's what the journey of life is about. Realizing how silly and dumb you were in the past because you've gotten that much wiser. So the point then is this. Rhyme and reason. Human intelligence has its limitations. And therefore... Divine truths are not necessarily so because that's the way it appears to us. Ultimately, divine truths are so because the Torah says so. 
That's why it's without any question the case. So the AFLP shall be seichel, even though that by virtue of intelligence, it makes sense, it's logical to say that all of existence has to be brought into reality as such. Since God is, in the famous phrase coined by the Rashba, the possibility of all possibilities, which in our terms means impossible, because you can't have the possibility of all possibilities. Possible means that there's things that are possible and things that are impossible. By definition, whenever there are possibilities, there have to be impossibilities. But God is the possibility of all possibilities, which is actually impossible. But that's the definition of divinity, beyond the scope of what the human mind can grasp. So, it's not actually an unshakable proof. It's a logical proof. It's the conclusion we come to, but there still is no absolute certainty. And we want to live with certainty. In other words, in the way the Rebbe explains this, the words of the Paslechem positively sing off the page. I mean, of course it's a proof. He's not proving to you these ideas because they're self-evident. They're obvious. They make sense. They're logical. But we still need to have scripture to back us up because otherwise maybe it isn't so even if it makes sense he doesn't need to quote all of the verses you understand it to be so but as soon as you have a verse or two which indicates that which you understood was understood correctly say oh we're good let me give you a perhaps a lame metaphor so, if you don't accept the pseudoscience of random evolution, and I'm calling it pseudoscience because, strictly speaking, science means knowledge. There is no knowledge, certain knowledge, when you're talking about a scientific theory. It's what you call an educated guess. It's logical. Logical doesn't mean that's what happened. So to use the terminology of scientific theorem, whenever you have two poles and you know what happens, say for example at temperature, you know what happens at zero degrees, and you know what happens at 100 degrees, you can guesstimate fairly accurately what will happen at every point as you wax or move through the degrees. Except, that's called interpolation. I know what happens at two poles. I can guesstimate what happens at a certain point. Except that nuclear physics is such that we reach something which I'll call the tipping point or a moment of paradigm shift. And, for example, under a tremendous amount of pressure or in tremendous heat or extreme cold, all the variably, variables or the quantum physics as they are collapse and a whole new order emerges, which is actually not predictable, which doesn't follow a continuum. It's when there's a paradigm shift. So say, for example, that somebody never would have seen a boiling point 
let's say the boiling point is uh, whatever, is 76 degrees or, or 80 degrees. That's the boiling point. So, but let's say they only would have been able to see privy to zero degrees or frozen, and they see the degree when things are liquefied. I'm talking Celsius. And then they see, let's say, um, a certain point of degrees where now we reach the boiling point. Let's say they didn't see the boiling point. Let's say they, they, can, they were only shown 10 or 15 degrees ahead of the boiling point. So they'd have to guesstimate now at what point did things boil or at what point was there a paradigm shift and they would not be able to pinpoint that without seeing it because it's just a theory. Now, by the way, something like quote-unquote random evolution is not based on interpolation but rather extrapolation. And I might add backwards extrapolation. I know what happens at this point. I know what happens at this point. I know what happens at this point. I don't know what the future will bring, but now I can postulate or imagine what might have happened in the past, but I don't even have a clear beginning point of reference. I'm postulating or assuming based on the way things are emerging or the way carbon is uh, gathering now that necessarily this is the way things would have to be if I look backwards. But who says the variables didn't change? Nobody can tell you that with certainty. Interestingly, Torah says that the variables were very different, that nuclear physics was different in the beginning of creation, certainly during the six days of creation, and even in the immediate time that followed, the velocity of the movement of the universe was very different. So the effects of time were different. The Medrash says that a child, within minutes, of emerging from the womb was capable of cutting its own umbilical cord. We don't even fathom that. It doesn't make any sense to us. Because we know the way infants grow now. and It would take like a year and a half or three or four years for a child to be that adept at wielding a sharp implement and understanding that it could have cut its umbilical cord. Assuming it would have the courage to do so. So we're talking about physical wherewithal and mental and emotional maturity that requires years, if not more than a decade or two. And the Medrash describes this as implicit. So there are those who will say, well, the Medrash says it's a metaphor. No reason to say that. Medrash doesn't introduce it as a metaphor. So what did a fellow tell me? That doesn't make sense. That's just stupid and God's not stupid. That, that's a ridiculous statement. That, that proves nothing. That's actually a stupid thing to say. Because that is to say that whatever I assume to be axiomatic is necessarily so and there's no way we can edu- 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 entertain any other possibility. So, in simple ABC language, suppose you're watching a mountain grow and every year the mountain, the lava, there's a live volcano, the lava grows a foot. Every year, the mountain grows by a foot. You have a thousand years of data. You never saw an eruption. Say you never saw an eruption. But you're watching a live volcano. Nobody ever saw an eruption. Imagine that. So the mountain is 3,000 feet high. The logical conclusion is that the mountain must be 3,000 years old because we know it's adding a foot every single year. Except that because nobody ever saw an eruption, and nobody knows what an eruption is, suppose that that were not a phenomenon that anybody ever would have seen, the, the mountain, in fact, is 1,001 years old. Because in that first year, during the course of the initial eruption, the mountain grew 
2,000 feet. And then for the 1,000 years, it's a lot of time. We don't have, it's almost nothing we have data of 1,000 years, continuous data of continuous markers being measured. Here you have 1,000 years of scientific measurement that actually do not tell you the right story because nobody knows what came before. And no eruption had ever been seen. Imagine if you could. So when we talk about logic, logic has its limitations. I could say that logically, if I, don't, if I reject the notion of random, there's nothing random about creation. I don't know how God created the species. They didn't evolve accidentally. I cannot accept as a person of faith, I cannot accept that the Torah says there's no randomness to, create, to creation or in fact to life. Nothing is random. Everything is by divine design until this very moment. So if everything's by divine design, I said, must, there must be a reason for it. If there must be a reason and a purpose to life, then logically, God would have to tell us what he wants. There would have to be a purpose. Well, that's logical. But just because it's logical doesn't mean it is so. Yes, it would make sense that if a creator would invest himself in the creation of a universe, there would have to be a purpose for the universe. But we know it's so because Torah says that there's a purpose. So it's logical. But the only way we can be a thousand percent certain is because Torah says so. That, in as many words, sums up the way the Rebbe explains the opening verses or the opening sentences of the book of Mishnah Torah, the laws of foundations of Torah, Yisodei Torah, and it would seem very reasonable. And the Kihat edition actually alludes to the Sicha, that, that this is, I think, the most straightforward way in which we could understand what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar just told us. So, let us come now to the conclusion. The logical conclusion, which is buttressed by the scriptural proof that indeed our logic is faultless, airtight, carries water, no leaking. Yes, it is so. All of these seven things logically can only be found in God, and the scripture even tells us that it's found in God. So, Hasechel Yigzer. It's the logical conclusion. The scripture backs it up. It frames it. So now, my dear friends, Rabbeinu Bechaya says to us, as this becomes clear to you, to a person, your acknowledgement of, or your awareness, your recognition of God's, the truth about God's kindness, the essence, the lasting, eternal essence, which is a fancy way to describe truth. <laughs> the, the, the notion that something is in style and therefore it is beautiful or striking or desirous is not true. It's not intrinsically true because there's nothing that forces me to adopt one style or the other. It's just for whatever reason. That's the way society is going now. So what's considered to be beautiful clothing in one decade is hideous in the next decade. Because the truth is it was never intrinsically beautiful or it's never intrinsically hideous. Tapered pants or bell bottoms are not necessarily beautiful or not. It's just what people get used to or are influenced by. But here we're speaking about a truth that doesn't change, not the flavor of the day, not the morality of the moment. So when you become aware of this, and you become aware of this when you spend 
time studying, contemplating, discussing with others. It, it becomes a part of your Weltanschauung, the way you view existence, the way you see yourself, the way you view others around you. When this becomes your truth, when it becomes so obvious to you, you will trust in Him. When this becomes obvious, you will place your trust in Hashem. You will. And not only will you place your trust in Hashem, your confidence, your reliance in Hashem, but you will devote yourself to God. And not only will you devote yourself to God, you will furthermore, at this point, you will actually leave the management or running of your life to Him. You will not be circumspect when God behaves towards you in a manner which seems harsh or judgmental. You will not be angered by what God chooses for you. Rabbeinu Bechai concludes with a quote from the 116th Psalm, from the 13th and 3rd verses. He says, I shall raise up a cup of salvation. I will call out in the name of God. That's verse 13. And verse 3 reads, I have found trouble. Sorrow, grief. Uveshem Hashem Ekra. Yet I called out in the name of the Lord. All right, let's go on here. Let's try to figure this out. So f- the first thing that we, we should have noticed by now is that Rabbeinu Bechaya, once again, seemed to have been very repetitive here. Very repetitive. That's number one. So we have to understand, that we know that he doesn't repeat himself. If he uses different terminology or seems to be saying the same thing in as many words, that's a mistake. We just have to understand what he's really saying. So, of course, the Paslechem does not disappoint. And he actually methodically combs through the words of Rabbeinu Bachaya and he says that Rabbeinu Bachaya, firstly, right in the beginning, he says, when this becomes clear to you, when you come to this recognition, in the truth of Hashem's kindness. He says it's going to engender two things. And it's important to identify these two very different things that will be engendered by virtue of the study and contemplation that we do. Because the way we react will be based on these two different dimensions. And as you'll see, they're exclusive of each other, but at the same time, their orbits overlap. Both are necessary. There's Yivtach Bay. You will place your trust in him. And place your trust in him from the word Bitochen. And then a new word, a new term is being introduced to us. V'yimoser comes from the, the term Mesira, to give over, like Mesirat Nefesh, to give your life over to God. So what are these two things? What's the difference between the 
the trust we place in Hashem, and this euphemistic giving over, giving ourselves over to Hashem. Is there a difference? What is the difference? That's, that's the question that the Paslechem raises. So Paslechem says like this. He says, Yiftach, trust, I rely on you. You, God, will grant me my needs. I know you will. I trust you implicitly. If there are things I need, you will provide. You're the ultimate provider. But at the same time, there's this idea of, you must sir, loy. I'm given over to you, God. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm asking you for the things I want as you, Hashem, you, God, have empowered us to and enabled us to and allowed us to. That's what prayer is all about. of asking. Hashem wants you to ask for your needs. But at the same time, I'm also in your hands. You know, like that famous verse that we say even with small children before they go to sleep, in your hands I place my spirit. I trust you. I'm in your hands, God. <laughs> We're going to tell God what to do. We're going to be angry when God doesn't do things as we want Him to do them. Hashem will do as Hashem pleases. And I accept that. Even if sometimes, on the surface, it seems to overtly be injurious, hurtful, bad. So these are the two details. These are the two platforms or dimensions that we're operating from. And so he says... That's where you see the different verbiage. We keep kind of vacillating between these two very different mindsets. Both, both are necessary. So then he explains. V'aniach hanagosi alav. Hashem is going to be in the driver's seat. He is the nahag, this proverbial driver of the bus. He's driving the bus. I'm, I'm okay. God's driving the bus. He's the pilot. He's, he's flying the plane. I place my trust in him. That's the meaning of v'yiftach So we say, v'yiftach you'll trust in him. V'yimasir, you'll be given over to him. V'yaniach han you place the direction of your life in Hashem's hands. Hashem, you will take it into the best possible place, in the best possible way. That's great. No anxiety. <laughs> what am I to worry? I, I do my part as I am supposed to. And Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar will talk about that in great detail later on. It's a very important issue that has to be addressed. If God's doing everything, why do I have to do anything? Why do I have to make my efforts? Why do I have to create a strategy? Why do I have to work hard to get to a certain place? God's doing it. Leave it to God. No, it's not so simple. You need to do your part. Having said that, though, I can leave things in God's hands, meaning don't get anxious about the things you can't control. Now, I'm also given over to God. And as one who is given over, or not only trusting that God will do things which are good for me, 
but I'm also devoted to God. That means that when things don't work out as I wanted them to. Let me say that again. When things don't work out the way I hoped and wanted to see them work out. When God meets out His din, His justice, His judgment, I don't start second-guessing and questioning God. I don't suspect that God is doing something improper. I don't get angry at God. He said, well, what's the difference between being suspicious of God or suspecting God of acting improperly or getting angry at God? So the Paslechem says, I'll tell you what the difference is. Yachshadeyu, the suspectfulness, is when you have an immediate situation. Yiskatsev is when it's what we call a chronic condition or a chronic reality. It's not, a, it's not something that's happening now. And say, why did God do this? If God loves me, why would he make this happen to me? Why, is, why did this happen or that happen? I don't second guess God. But then there's something else that's being told to us. And that is, it's not only a question of if something else didn't happen. What actually is going on here is that somebody has a chronic condition. Which can mean somebody is always poor. Why did God make me always poor? Or somebody has a horrible marriage, God forbid. Or poor health. He said, like, I'm angry at God. Why did, why did I get the short end of the stick? Why do other people seem to have a wonderful life, a charmed life, and I don't? So we don't say that because we're given over to God. And as being given over to God, on what God has chosen for us. This is what King David, peace be upon him, said. Yeshua says the Nedebekodesh, that means, if God wishes to bring me salvation. So then, I cry out to him. I proclaim his name. But what if it's sort of a yogin? What if suffering and grief, not salvation, is what God sends my way? Oh, then of Hashem Hashem Ekra. Then I will also call out to God. So the response actually is the same. Everything's great. B'Shem Hashem Ekra. Things don't work out the way I hope them to. B'Shem Hashem Ekra. I continue to make the boldest statement of absolute faith and trust in Hashem. Here I trust that not God will do what I want Him to do or what's overtly good because in fact He hasn't but I trust it's still best for me. So it's not a different arena of trust. It's a different platform, and there is, so to speak, an overlap. One is very much in the realm of the positive security that I take in Hashem's love and care and concern and attentiveness and, and, and omnipotence and enduring stamina and power and knowledge of what's good for me and all those other things. So I'm certain God will do for me as I want Him to do for me. On the other hand, when it doesn't seem to be that way, not overtly, I still call out to Hashem and I trust that what has happened is for the very best. 
as the past Lechem points out, the very same King David, in the same Psalm, Psalm 116, speaks about both. Two poles, two extremes. Reaction is the same. The reaction, B'Shem Hashem Ekra. I call out in Hashem's name. Now, it's from these verses that our sages learned, says the Paslechem, that a person is obligated to bless Hashem for things that are bad when they go bad, just as when they go good. That's easy to talk about, very hard to live by. In the 19th century, there was a, a famous, decidedly non-Hasidic rabbi. whose name was Dov Beidish Meisels. He married very well. Wealthy father-in-law, I think he opened a bank at some point, and he went bankrupt. Anyway, he ended up becoming the chief rabbi of Krakow, and then later on he became the chief rabbi of Warsaw. He was a big supporter of Polish independence. The Russian czarist regime was not happy with him. In fact, they, they arrested him and exiled him for that very purpose. On one occasion, he was involved in all kinds of political maneuvers. At one point, he was sitting with what they called the left, and somebody expressed surprise and outrage that a rabbi would sit with the left. And he said, I sit with the left because Jews have no rights. He said, I sit with the left because Jews have no right, but in English it's as rights. Anyway, he was a controversial figure. Tremendous, tremendous scholar. Definitely not what you would call influenced by the Hasidic movement. So anyway, the story goes, and this is just a story they tell. I can't vouch for its authenticity, although uh, Ravadin Evan Yisrael in the Steinsatz commentary quotes the story, and usually he's, he's uh, pretty careful about the stories that he, that, he, that he would tell, and I think he did his research. So I'm going to rely that if he told the story in one of his classes, or it's in, printed in some of his writings, that it's authentic. So the story goes that Dovber Schmeisels had a lot of money, a lot of money, but he wanted to invest the money. He had to live. You know, you can't just eat your principal. So for a period of time, what he did is he would invest the money in the lumber business. He would purchase a, a forest or attract a forest from one of the local squires, Polish squires, and he'd hire a, a whole team of lumberjacks and a foreman and send them off and they'd chop down the trees for whatever period it was, and then they'd float the logs down the Vistula River, and that would bring them to Lemberg, I think, or Lodge, and from there they would be harvested by a different team of lumberjacks, and it was, there was no cost of transportation, right? You're, just, you're floating the logs down the river, and most people don't pull a log out of the river, and you probably had like one or two lumberjacks who accompanied the logs on their journey kind of watching the logs and pushing them along. Yeah, you've seen pictures of this. And, and that was a, was a very lucrative business. And he would invest all of the principal. And in fact, as, as the story goes, he would borrow other people's money, invest for other people as well. And it was foolproof, but nothing's foolproof because on the rare occasion that the Vistula River would flood, all of a sudden the lumber would be lost. So the story goes that after years of doing lucrative business year after year, the river flooded and everything was lost. 
Now, Reb Dov Berish, being a wealthy man in his own right, didn't want a position in the rabbinate. He had, a, as the yeshiva of the day was, this is like the early 19th century, mid-19th century, wasn't really any formal yeshivot as we know them today. Talmidim, students, pupils would gather around a particularly charismatic, insightful, and wise person, and he would teach them Torah. So he had this group of disciples that gathered around him. Anyway, the question was now, who would bring the bad news to the teacher, to the Rebbe? Nobody wanted to tell him the bad news. Then they drew lots, and one hapless fellow got the job. Okay. So he sits down with the Dov Berish, and he says, Rebbe, do you remember where you were teaching us that the Gemara Mesechet Brachot on page 60 or 61 there? And the Rebbe says, yeah. He says, do you remember the way you interpreted the, the dictate, dictum of our sages, Kishem, just in the same way, a person, just as a person has a bless Hashem, and you explain that Rashi says, with the same joy? Yeah, yeah, sure. I remember learning the Gemara. He said, and you explain that you do it with joy. And, and the Dove bearer says, yeah, yeah, sure. So the student says, I, I don't understand that. How could you be joyous about something bad that happens? Just as much as something good that happens. And Rabbi Meisels explains it to him once and twice and three times. And the student says, look, Rabbi, I have to tell you, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're saying. But, but if it makes sense to you, that's good. Because you should be very happy right now. You should be thanking Hashem and dancing for joy. And he said, really? Why? He said, well, because the Vistula River has flooded and all of your lumber is gone. And the story goes that as soon as Dov Berish heard these words and they sunk in, he fainted. You know, life as he knew it was over. Now he wasn't a rich man. Now he was an indebted man. His fortune was gone. And he owed money. And they immediately ran to get some water and they splashed water on him and they brought him too. And the first words that he said is, he said, now, I don't understand the Gemara either. But this is not easy. This is easy to talk about. It's not, it's not easy to live by this credo. It's a struggle. It's the effort we call in building betochen. So, you know, there are, so to speak, ways we are able to rationalize or explain how and why bad things happen. But unless you muster a tremendous amount of faith, none of these rationale necessarily can make it easy for you. So, for example, there's famous Rabbeinu Yena in Shari Tshuva in the second chapter who talks about the fact that Hashem brings punishment or bad things to a person, but it's for his good because it's cleansing him of his iniquities and his imperfections. And he says in the same way somebody would thank a, a, a person who performed surgery for saving his life even though they had to amputate an arm or a leg, and that's a terrible thing, but it's better than dying. Better to live without a leg than to be dead. So actually, it's for his good. So you have to know that Hashem did for you what's, what's for your good. And although the cut is painful, the person who trusts in Hashem knows that this affliction, says Rebbeinu Yena, is ultimately a good thing for him. It's easy to talk about. 
not very easy to live with when you're actually experiencing that pain because the pain you feel is emotional. It's an emotional hole. And these are cerebral answers. It's like trying to put a round peg into a square hole. It doesn't really work. It doesn't really fit. Answers to questions, logical questions get logical answers. Emotional pain doesn't need a logical answer. When somebody's in pain, they need commiseration, camaraderie, bereavement. But nonetheless, there is still a Torah logic that one works with to try to develop this faith. The second way of looking at this is, as the Gemara tells us, and I talked about this Gemara just a couple of days ago, and we mentioned it, and I'll be mentioning it again, of Rabbi Akiva, who has a whole series of mishaps happen to him, and he doesn't complain, and he doesn't get angry at God, he's not suspicious of God, and it turns out that that saves his life. Without going into the details of that Gemara, Rabbi Akiva keeps saying, whatever God does, God does for the best, and in the end, it actually turns out to be so. Nachamish Gamzu, Rabbi Akiva's predecessor, or Rebbe, he said, Gamzulatova, this too is for the good, and as we talked about in the previous episode or two, quoting Maharal of Prague, it was Nachamish Gamzu's absolute trust in Hashem that made it good when he was robbed of his gold and silver and given dirt and mud and stones and pebbles, which actually became the best thing for him. So this touches on trust actually turning a bad situation into something good. And lastly, there's this idea that that he who God loves, he sometimes deals with in what seems to be a harsh way. But this is a deeper meaning of love. And like the Alter Rebbe talks about this in the 28th chapter of Tanya, the 27th chapter of Tanya, he talks about sadness and about depression. And he says when a person receives a higher level of Hashem's love, what isn't overtly love, it's actually a deeper level of closeness. It's a closeness that can't be fathomed or understood in our present iteration only when Mashiach will come. Only in another world, in another dimension, can it begin to make sense. So these are some of the rhymes rationale or reasons that are applied to bad things happening. And my point, my, the point really, my friends, is this. In the end, it's about emuna, and it's about betochen. It's about our emotional connection to Hashem. The things that we learn, the things that we contemplate, the things that we talk about are all meant to nurture, to develop and cultivate the innate faith and trust that is part of our makeup but has to be brought forth. And with this, we conclude the second chapter of the Shara B'Tochen. I'm grateful that you joined today. I hope that you found this illuminative, uplifting, inspiring. Please like and share, and share the word. And let's try to get as many people as possible on the B'Tochen train to learn more about this and to make it a part of their lives because B'Tochen is the key to unlocking personal happiness, to bringing personal success, and ultimately to bringing Hashem's blessings for all of us. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so at YouTube, 
facebook.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you for joining today. I look forward to seeing you in the future. Have a beautiful day.